Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 with me. We've been in a, a study of the book of 1 Peter for a little bit now. And in the first half of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter's been encouraging suffering Christians by sketching a portrait of their new identity in Christ. What's this new identity? Well, it's, it's being foreknown by God in verse 2. It's being cleansed by Jesus' blood. It means, verse 3, that they're born again and born to a living hope. They have a heavenly inheritance, verse 4. It's unfading. It's imperishable. It cannot be taken away. So even when there's opposition, when they face various trials, God's goodness, there's a redemptive purpose to those trials. They're, they're purifying faith. They're preparing us for Christ's return. Peter writes to encourage these Christians that they love Jesus even though they haven't yet seen him. They rejoice in Jesus with inexpressible and glory-filled joy, verse 8 says. They have the good news. It's theirs. They know more about God's plan than the prophets of old. They know about Jesus' suffering and glories to follow. They get to experience the stuff that angels get all starry-eyed about. And yet, even though they're chosen by God, they're simultaneously exiles in this world. Verse 1 says, they're elect exiles. They're strangers. They're a people between two worlds. Therefore, verse 13 says, they should be ready. We saw it last week. They should be vigilant and serious. They should gird up the loins of their mind and be alert and purposeful as they set their hope on God's grace, as they set their hope on Jesus himself, as they set their hope on Jesus' return. So the first half of 1 Peter 1 sketches out a portrait of that new identity in Christ. But in verse 13, he turns from the descriptive to the prescriptive. He moves from what is to what should be. He moves from what they have to what they should pursue. He lays out specifics for how they're to live out these new realities, how they're to live out their new identity. As Francis Schaeffer famously wrote 50 years ago now, how should we then live? Peter will tell us that. Before we read it, though, allow me to mention an alternative outlook on identity that we can contrast with what Peter says here. Joel Olstein, America's blinkingest pastor, was recently on Oprah where he led the audience in rehearsing a series of I am's. I am strong. I am healthy. I am confident. I am secure. I am talented. I am creative. I am disciplined. I'm focused. I'm valuable. I'm beautiful. I'm blessed. I'm excited about my future. I am victorious. Holstein said, whatever you say after I am is who you are or who you will be. He said, words determine our destiny. Holstein believes that words have the power to change reality. He believes that words are how we grow, 
how we change. It's a message that Oprah says changed her life. So there's that. But according to the Bible, we're not changed by self-declarations. We're changed by God's declaration in Christ. According to the Bible, we're not changed by mantras. According to the Bible, God tells us who we are and who we should be. And getting there is slow going. Growth is slow going, not a mantra. Most days it's a struggle. God's calling on our lives is heavy. It's weighty. It's scary. It's not something we blink and smile about. It's, it's like this, verse 13 and following. Therefore, in light of God's grace, in other words, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. That's God's word for us this morning. As we focus on verses 14 to 19 today, I think there are three main things that Peter wants us to see, wants us to know, wants us to pursue. The first, to embrace nonconformity. Embrace nonconformity. That's the message of verse 14. Nonconformists refuse to conform to the status quo. We Christians, at times, should refuse to conform to the status quo, the status quo that we've had in our minds from years ago, the status quo of the world around us. We don't decide what we conform to based on our own desires or leanings or personalities. We're not trying to discover who we are in that sort of sense. We embrace nonconformity and pursue conformity according to God's standards as he's revealed them in his word. We're obedient children, he says. Embrace nonconformity as obedient children. That's how verse 14 begins. And notice, that isn't a command. It doesn't say, be obedient children. It says, as obedient children. It's a statement. But it's not a statement of commendation, like they've passed the test, and they now get this pin on their lapel. Obedient children, you've been good enough. No, it's a declaration of their identity. It's as much a calling as it is a description. Christians are obedient children. Like a mom might say, we don't run in this house. It doesn't mean kids have never run in this house. It means this is something we just don't do. It's part of our identity. It's one of the rules of the home. Christians are obedient children. It's one of their monikers. It's a new identity. 
And it's the basis for leaving behind an old identity. They didn't used to be obedient children. They used to be sons of disobedience. That's how Paul put it in Ephesians 2. So Christians are those who are leaving behind ignorant passion. Part of embracing nonconformity is leaving behind ignorant passion. He says at the end of verse 14, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What's he referring to? He means before Christ, how you operated, what, what made you tick. It was ignorant passion. That's one way of describing the old self in the old way, the old desires, thoughtless impulses. Now, that can look like raw paganism, which the world might even blush at. It can look like orgies and Ouija boards, this thoughtless impulse passion stuff. It can also look a lot more clean-shaven and respectable than that. It can be white-collar pride, self-sufficiency, the kind of stuff that the world looks at and says, well, that's just good self-esteem and hard work. There's a way to be respectable in our world, and yet it's still former ignorance and passions. But it's former for us as Christians. For the Christian, this is in the category of former. It's who we used to be. It's not who we are. Now we're obedient children. So God calls us to be who we are, to work that out more and more, to see it displayed again and again and in deeper ways. He tells us who we should be. He tells us who we are. So in some ways it's true what the bumper sticker says, that Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Great bumper sticker to have on your car if you're a poor driver. In some ways, though, Christians are are different. In some ways, Christians aren't different from other sinners. In other ways, Christians are different on fundamental and otherworldly levels. And the Bible insists on that again and again and again. We could put so many verses here right now. We could go to t- Titus 2 and Titus 3 or Ephesians 3 and 4 and 5 about the difference that the gospel makes. Christians are different from what they used to be and different from the world around them in part because they've come to the end of their selves. They've come to see their need of a Savior. And they've come to see Jesus as that only Savior. But also Christians are different from the world around them with respect to desires and aims and hopes. And those desires, as I said, are being worked out slowly into the fabric of life, into the fingerprints of our actions. Paul says similar words in Romans 12, similar to what Peter says here. He says in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's an ongoing command. Keep being transformed. You're not there yet, but don't be conformed to the image of the world and don't be conformed to the pattern of those old passions, passions of ignorance. Be conformed to Christ. What are you conforming to? Who are you being shaped by? Oh, you are being shaped. No matter how individualistic, no matter how anti-establishment, no matter how hipster you are, you are being shaped. We all are. 
And there are a million options for what shapes us. There are a million different patterns out there that we might follow. But in one sense, there are really only two roads that we go by. We either walk the road of ignorant, unthoughtful passions outside of Christ, or we embrace the identity of obedient children in Christ. Now, before we go any further, we can't lose sight of the whole chapter here and what we've seen before. We can't lose perspective that all of this is built upon a therefore, the hinge of the therefore in verse 13. Remember all of the great promises unfolded for us in the first 12 verses that were chosen and, and cleansed by his blood. We've been born again. We have an inheritance. It's ours. It's not going to be taken away. He will keep us by his power again and again and again. The promises unfold in First Peter, and a lot of them are crammed into the first, uh, to the first chapter of the letter. It's only then that Peter gives commands. It's only then that Peter gives a therefore and tells them what to do in light of what they already have. So obedient children are saved children. But they're more than just saved. They're also being sanctified. That's the second thing Peter calls them to. Holiness. Pursue holiness. Look at verse 15. A contrast from verse 14. 14 is what you used to be and should no longer pursue. But, verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The idea of holiness, no doubt, sounds passe to many today, maybe even some here. For one, it doesn't sound humble. The world says holiness who says what holiness is? It certainly doesn't sound cool to talk about holiness or wanting to be holy. It sounds very old-fashioned, doesn't it? It sounds like a life of can'ts and don'ts to many people. But holiness is not mere rule-keeping. Certainly not the, the rules of uh, 1950s fundamentalism, you know, like don't drink, don't smoke. Don't chew, don't run with girls that do, that kind of thing. It's not a few big don'ts. Holiness equals entering marriage a virgin. As long as you don't do that, you can do anything else you want. That's not holiness. It's not a mystical experience either. It's not breaking through the other side where now the Christian life is easy. It's not some kind of vague spirituality it's certainly not a string of I am statements about what you want out of life. And holiness is not a fix for a guilty conscience. You may be tempted to think, well, I'll feel better if I don't do those bad things and if I do a couple of good things. And you will temporarily, but it's not the same thing as giving glory to God and walking in faith and, and pursuing holiness. To be holy means literally to be set apart, to be distinct, set apart for God's purposes and God's work and God's things, God's reality. Remember, we've been born again, born from above. We're in a new world, a new realm. We have a new parentage. We have, we have a new identity. We are now, in a sense, new people. And so we're to be holy. 
and to be holy in response again to God's saving work. We're not to pursue holiness apart from grace, but in grace we're to to do what he says. We are to be who he has made us to be. We're to be like Christ, and pervasively so. Notice he says, be holy in all your conduct. Now this word conduct has the connotation of being public. So clearly holiness is not retreating from the world. This is God's ways on display in the public view. It's also not just religious or ceremonial holiness if he says be holy in all your conduct. It's not just being holy on Sunday morning or just being holy when you're before your Bible. It's not being holy in holy moments, but it's being holy in all of life. It is making all things holy according to God's ways. That means that there's a kind of holiness for your car, for driving. There's a kind of holiness for your computer. There's a kind of holiness for work. Holiness when you're alone. Holiness in your marriage. Holiness with the kids. Holiness, fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. We can keep going. You get the point. All over life. Paul tells us this in Romans 12 when he says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Bodies as living sacrifices. Sacrifices in the Old Testament were usually killed. Lay your whole body as a living, ongoing sacrifice down on his altar in holiness, all of life laid out before him as worship. Why? Well, Peter gives us at least two reasons. He says, God is holy. Verse 15, he who called you is holy. That's why you should be holy. Secondly, he calls you to be like him. In many ways, we're not to be like God. You're not to try to be omniscient. You're not to try to be omnipresent. You're supposed to embrace some of your human limitations. But originally, man... Adam and Eve were made in his image, reflecting many of his ways. And God's plan of redemption is also one of restoration. And he's restoring that image into our very beings and our lives. In that way, we're to be like him. Notice that he says, he who called you is holy. You've been called unto salvation. Now, he says, verse 16, it's been written... In Leviticus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Imitation. You can't miss that there's a father-son relationship being talked about or hinted at here. Remember, verse 14 described Christians as obedient children. And verse 17, like so many places in the Bible, refers to God as our father. That father-child image is multidimensional. Some obvious implications of it are that there's relationship with God. There's uh, his care for us. We have uh, trust in him. He's good to us. We have dependence on him. We have an inheritance from him. We're part of a new family born from above. Maybe a less obvious implication of being children of the heavenly father is that we're to do what he does. 
In Bible times, almost all sons came to do what their fathers did vocationally. Not so today. Today, you know, kids grow up seeing the warts in dad's job and they want to do anything but that job. But in Bible times, if your father was a blacksmith, it was practically a given that you'd be a blacksmith, just like Jesus and Joseph. Joseph was a carpenter and Jesus followed in his footsteps. So when the Bible tells us that God is our Father, yes, we should think of acceptance and privilege and relationship and intimacy, but we should also be reminded that we've entered into the family business. And what's the family business? What does God do? Well, He spreads His glory, for one. We join Him in that activity, don't we? We spread His glory. It's part of the family business. He loves. That's what God does. That's what we do too. We follow him in that. As I've loved you, so love one another. And he's righteous. I'll tell you what's not in the family business. Sin. The family business is not sin. It is righteousness. As children, follow your father. Be like him in his holiness. And not only is the father-child dynamic so instructive, but... That word, that potent word, exile, we've got to talk about that again. Peter says again, now the second time, he refers to an exile in verse 17. Throughout the time of your exile. Look over to chapter 2, verse 11. He'll use it again where he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Your strangers in this land, your outsiders and you're traveling through you're on a pilgrimage not literally you're not going to mecca you're not going to jerusalem you're not going to santa fe you're going to the heavenly city what john bunyan talked about in that great allegory pilgrim's progress as you pass through you're in different places you're in another world in a sense again christians are those between two worlds we lived in england for a bit And we were warned by Americans before we went over there that there would be some culture shock. And there'd even be some shock about there being culture shock because you can get lulled into thinking that it's the same, you know, we have the same language, so this is easy. There's no culture shock. Maybe they just uh, talk different than we do and have older buildings and um, worse teeth. (laughs) But one of our culture shock moments was at Thanksgiving That being uh, an American holiday, at least the one in November on a Thursday. So I don't remember what Sarah and I did on that Thanksgiving, but I I knew that it was strange to be in England during American Thanksgiving. Nothing's closed. Everyone goes to work. Everyone goes to school. So, you know, what do we do? We celebrate it at night. I mean, can you have turkey Thanksgiving dinner when it's dark out? Because it got dark early there. I mean, is it un-American to not celebrate it or... Should we invite just American friends over? Can you invite, invite a Brit over for Thanksgiving? But we had further shock when we heard from some of our British friends. They thought that Thanksgiving, and even more so the 4th of July, were rather anti-English celebrations. They thought that Thanksgiving was the celebration of when our forefathers moved away from that God-forsaken country. And the 4th of July was the celebration of when we kicked their butts. (laughs) 
Of course, none of us celebrate those holidays that negatively, and I was glad to set the record straight with them and help them out with it. But it underscored the reality that we're from different countries. Even where our histories overlap, we have very different perspectives. And thus, we have different traditions. We have different ways. Being a Christian is a lot like that. It's a strange thing to celebrate an American holiday in another country. And we Christians have different traditions and different ideals and different dynamics and pulls and tugs and goals than the world around us. We're strangers and sojourners. So in some ways, we can relate perfectly to the world around us. We're them, just forgiven. But in other ways, we can't. Not in a condescending way, but, but in a real way. We can't relate to that. We're different now. In many ways, we are them, but in many important ways now, we're, we're different. We're called out. We're strangers in a strange land, even while we're here. And while we're here, we wait for Jesus. We wait for his coming. We set our hope there, and we live for him, and we live for him and not ourselves, and not for the world. Peter will talk about this some more in 1 Peter 4. Will you flip over there real quickly? 1 Peter 4, and see how this relates to what he's talking about in chapter 1. In verse 2, he says, We're to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, no longer for self, but for the will of God. For the time, he says, is past for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same. You used to. What? What changed? You think you're better than us now? And they malign you. That's what Peter says. Now, ideally, this distinctiveness will be intriguing and alluring to the world. Peter talks about this in chapter 2. But here again, he also talks about the mockery and opposition we might face. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, not if, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there's a, an evangelistic, a loving component to this thing of being holy, being different, being a distinct community. Not drawn out of the community, but within the community, its own unique otherworldly community. The hope is that they'll glorify God when Jesus comes back. In the meantime, many will speak against us. They'll malign us. They'll be surprised that we don't join with them in this or that. And yet, as far as it concerns us, our growth in this, being more holy, it's a process, isn't it? It doesn't all come at once. It's something we strive for, we work towards. It's a matter of becoming what we behold. Remember that biblical principle? You become whatever you behold. You see this in Psalm 115 about idols. Well, there, idols, it says, they have hands, but they can't lift a finger. 
They have eyes, but they can't see. Ears, but they can't hear. Mouths, but they can't speak. Feet, but they can't walk. And those who make them and behold them will be like them. Eyes that don't work for what God intended. Ears that don't work for what God intended. Hands that don't work for what God intended. But now in Christ, in his great saving package, we're not just forgiven, but we're restored. And the restoring process, the redeeming process, in part comes as we behold Christ in his word and we're changed. We become more like him. One day we'll see him face to face and boom, we're instantly like him, free from sin. Until then, it's a battle. It's an effort. We have to keep putting up the pattern before us of what we should be and and distinguishing that from the pattern around us that tells us, no, be this. No, 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 be that. It takes effort. Yes, effort. Even gospel-rooted effort. Even spirit-dependent effort. Still effort. Even faith-filled. Yes, still effort effort. I have a quote by D.A. Carson in my office where he says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition And call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. This is all man-made liberation, isn't it? I mean, we all do this from time to time, some more than others, but this kind of liberation is a man-made liberation. It's not the Jesus-given liberation of the gospel. And that's much more freeing and much more energizing. And it's the real deal. It's not a knockoff imitation. Well, then Peter turns to fear, believe it or not. He says we should live in fear, the third thing. Look at verse 17. He says there, If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves, live out life with fear throughout the time of your exile. Fear? Really? Yeah, in English, fear has all kinds of different connotations, doesn't it? And we have even different words for fear. We have, you know... uh, Timid or or scared, nervous or terrified, dread, phobia. In Greek, there's only one word for fear, phobeo. It's where we get our English word phobia, but it doesn't mean phobia like we use phobia today. Only one Greek word for fear, but many connotations. You have to look at the context around to see whether this is good fear or bad fear. Because many times in Scripture we're told, do not fear, do not be afraid. Remember the angels at Jesus' announcement, the birth? They had much fear. And the angel said, do not be afraid, I come. Good tidings. So the Bible says many times over, don't be afraid of this, don't be afraid of that. 
But over 150 times, the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord as a good thing, something God commends, something God commands. Proverbs tells us that fear of the Lord is the beginning or the foundation of wisdom. It's the thing you build everything else on, relating to him in this way, through this thing called fear. But some would say that this is really reverence. If it's a good kind of fear commended and commanded in the Bible, then really what we're talking about is reverence. But that might be soft-pedaling it a bit. Because you might have reverence for meeting a president, a, a famous business tycoon, right? A, a movie star. You have reverence, respect. But that's not what this means in relation to God. On the other hand, fear is not, the good kind of fear, is not terror or dread. And that's why you have things like Revelation 1. John sees this vision of Jesus, and it's pretty scary. And John says, I fell at his feet as dead. He's scared. And then Jesus says, do not be afraid. But Jesus doesn't tell him to get up either. He doesn't say, do not be afraid. Get up here. High five. No, I mean, there's still something of awesome, heavy, greatness, majesty of Jesus where John is right to lay low in front of his presence. So fear, the good kind of fear in the Bible, fear of God is awe. It's trembling with joy and with faith. Get this. Fear of God is consistent with trusting him. Psalm 115 it says, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. It seems like that's inconsistent. It seems like as one would grow, the other would shrink. As you trust him more, you fear him less. But no, they grow together. Fear of the Lord is also consistent with God's grace. Psalm 130. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, we wouldn't think like that, would we? It goes against our natural sensibilities. With you, there's forgiveness, so we don't have to fear you anymore. And that would be kind of true. That's, that's something you can find in the Bible. But here, there's forgiveness so that he's feared. Fear is also consistent with his love. Psalm 118, let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Who says that? Those who fear him. And fear of the Lord is not inconsistent with God's joy. Psalm 147, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Not in the sense that he's a cosmic bully and he likes it when people are afraid of him. No, there's something more intimate, more special, more complex going on than that. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him in a trusting, believing, saving way. This is all part of the new covenant. The new covenant? In Jeremiah 32, there it's called an everlasting covenant. It's clearly talking about what we call the new covenant in the New Testament. And it says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And I will rejoice in doing them good. God is good. It's part of his saving package to put his fear in our hearts so that we don't 
run away from him. I mean, is, is your head kind of spinning? Wait, run away from him? I thought if I feared him, I would run from him. No, 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 that's a different kind of fear. But, but it's also fear. It's not just respect or, or, or like, I like him. No. You wouldn't think to say that he's father and judge, but Peter does. Why conduct yourselves with fear? He says, verse 17, our father is the judge. We call on him as father, who? The one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. I think he's saying, as you call God father, don't forget he's also the universal, all-wise, all-knowing judge. So there's amazing privilege. He's father, and, and there's amazing awe and trembling. He's the judge. He didn't stop being the judge when he became your father. When I was in middle school, I had a friend whose dad was our principal. I remember once joking to him that it, it must be nice that if he gets sent down to the principal's office, it's his dad there waiting for him. And he said, yeah, right, it's worse for me, way worse. I'm his kid. He expects certain things of me. He's told me. He's told me before, don't embarrass me. Don't embarrass me in this place. When a teacher sends you to my office, he's sending you, my son, to the principal's office, who's his father. I got it. I thought, wow, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if, if Ryan Kelly gets sent to the principal's office and has to face some kind of consequences, maybe detention, you know, I go home and I tell mom, I had to stay late for detention. Oh, really, what happened? Well, dumb teacher this, principal didn't understand this. And my mom goes, oh, well, you know, it's too complicated to try to figure that one out. And so that's it. But if my friend gets sent to the principal's office, it has all kinds of family dynamics. It doesn't end when he goes home. If you can see on a human level that there's a, a fatherly fear that's real and good and right, how much more so on a, on a level of a heavenly father who's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, who made us from scratch, made us for his glory, told us what we should do, what we shouldn't do, is merciful and patient, oh, so patient, oh, so merciful and good. Our Father isn't a mid-school principal. He's the eternal and universal judge. He's God. But, but Peter also wants to stress that he judges. Another reason why we should conduct ourselves with fear, he judges impartially and universally. He's not just the judge that's theoretical or that's someone else's business. He judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now, what does this mean? This is getting harder to, to swallow, isn't it? Well, the first thing that we have to say that this doesn't mean when it says he judges impartially according to each one's deeds is that there's a kind of salvation which is according to performance and deeds and good things we've done of earning salvation. No. We have to rub out way too much of our Bibles for that to be remotely true. 
But it may be that Peter is teaching us here that there is a kind of judgment to come at the end where our faith as Christians is validated by our works. Sort of like an end times James 2. Remember James 2? You show me your faith without works? How? I will show you my faith by my works. We saw this at our Lord's Supper service last Wednesday. That there's no such thing as bare faith. Yes, we're saved by faith alone, but not the faith that is alone. Faith is always working and active and bearing fruit. Oh, yes, imperfectly. Yes, to varying degrees, depending on this person or that person. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, Jesus said. Salvation isn't earned by deeds, but it is evidenced by deeds. And Peter may be getting at that here. What is clear is this juxtaposition of father and judge should result in fear and following in his ways. A hundred years ago, Alexander McLaren put it like this. I suppose in Peter's days, as in our days, there were people that so fell in love with one aspect of the divine nature that they had no eyes for any other and who so magnified the thought of the Father that they forgot the thought of the judge. That error has been committed over and over again in all ages. So the church as a whole, one may say, has gone swaying from one extreme to the other, and sometimes has been foolish enough to pit them against each other, instead of doing, as Peter does here, braiding them together as both conspiring to one result. That result being the production in the Christian heart, of wholesome awe. Our Father is the judge. He will judge. Let us walk in fear before him. And let's walk in fear before him because our ransom was astonishingly costly. That's what Peter says in verse 18. Conduct yourselves in fear knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now we'll come back to these verses when we come back to 1 Peter in a couple of weeks. We'll talk some more about verses 18 and 19. But here, let's connect it with what we've said already this morning, what we've seen in the verses before. Here Peter's talking about being ransomed, redeemed, rescued, bought, set free. It's a word that harkens back to the Exodus where God's people were freed, rescued, redeemed out of Egypt in Pharaoh's tyranny. Here it says they've been ransomed, set free. From what though? From the feudal ways that were inherited from your fathers. Not just set free just to go and be your own like you rescued this hurt dove and then one day released it from your window hoping that it would fly back, but it must fly back on its own. Oh, it's here. God didn't rescue us and set us free like that. No. Chapter 2, verse 9, Peter will go on to say, He's made you a people for his own possession. You've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. True freedom is not being free from him. It's being free in him and free from those futile old ways. 
Which means then that Jesus didn't just die to set us free from the guilt of sin, but also to set us free from sin. From those ways. That old hymn, Rock of Ages, puts this so well. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Double cure? Yeah, save from wrath and make me pure. The old theologians used to call it the duplex gratia, the double grace, the double cure. Grace pardons and it purifies. It justifies and it sanctifies. And that came at a great cost. Not with gold or silver. That's, yes, precious, it's pricey, but it's perishable. Far more precious is the blood of Christ. The sacrifice of the Lamb. The Lamb without blemish or spot. Perfect righteousness for us. That is what enacted our forgiveness. And that's what began God's working in us, what he has declared of us. This should cause us to tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Were you there when the stone was rolled away? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Not often enough. God help us.